First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, if you have your Bible today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to Acts 15, the passage that was just read for us? And as you're turning there, you know, the title of the message today uh, speaks about the most important church business meeting ever. Uh, I was thinking back to just a couple of weeks ago in, in our own local church, we had a, a pretty important meeting. I don't know about the most important meeting in our church, but, but it was a important meeting as uh, we had a chance a couple weeks ago at the end of all of our services to call ourselves into a very short meeting and to, to vote together and to vote overwhelmingly together about uh, moving forward in faith and building a new worship center and calling a new pastor to our staff as well, Aaron Still, to oversee our, our church planting vision that God's given us. And, and so in our little corner of the kingdom and this local church, that was definitely one of the more important business meetings we've ever had. But, but it kind of got me thinking as you step back and as you look at, at the entire history of the church, the big C church, made up of every tribe and every tongue. It's been going on for 2,000 years and counting. What was the most important church business meeting that has ever happened in the last 2,000 years? Uh, there are several uh, councils that if you're a student of church history might come to your mind that happened in the first few centuries of the church where some pretty important things were talked about, like the person of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity uh, you might have studied about the Council of Nicaea that happened in A.D. 325, or the Council of Constantinople in 381, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Those were certainly all important church meetings. But I'd have to agree with Pastor John MacArthur that I believe the most important church business meeting of all time is the first one, the one that happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 49, that is written about here in our text in Acts chapter 15. And the reason why I believe it's the most important church meeting ever is because of the importance of the question that was being debated at this particular meeting. The debate was over this fundamental question. How do people get saved? How do people get saved? Now, obviously, that wasn't just an important question back then. That is still an important question today. It really is the question that we all have to get an understanding about before we come to the end of our lives. I hope you'll follow along closely with me today as we walk through this story because there's still a lot of confusion about this. There's a lot of confusion in many churches about this, about how a person is saved. A lot of different ideas it doesn't really matter, of course, what this group says or what that group says or even what we might think personally about it. What matters is what God has said about it, how he's answered that question in his word. And that's what we want to find out together today. In the chronology of the book of Acts, this most important church meeting ever happens right between Paul's first missionary journey and his second missionary journey that we'll look at uh, next week. And so at this point, Paul and Barnabas have just gotten back from that first missionary journey. They've shared with their home church in the city of Antioch all of the wonderful things God did uh, about all of the Gentiles who came to faith left and right in every city that they went to. And it wasn't just the folks in Antioch who were interested to hear that. There were also some people in Jerusalem that were interested to hear that. And some of the people in Jerusalem that heard about this were not 
exactly thrilled with what was going on, with the way that all these Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ and just being accepted into the church just the way that they were. Verse 1 tells us about these folks and what they thought. It says, And certain men came down from Judea, that's the region right around Jerusalem, came to Antioch. They taught the brethren there, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Basically, what they were saying to the Gentiles is pretty clear. They were saying it's not enough for you just to believe in Jesus and think that that alone is what saves you. No, you have to do something else. You uh, need to be circumcised as Moses commanded in the Old Testament if you really want to be saved. And that, that may sound strange to our ears that anybody would say something like that. That's where we need to remember how important the marker, the sign of circumcision was in the Old Testament. This was, in fact, the sign of the covenant of God's people that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17. This was the sign that marked off the people of God, Israel, from all the other nations on earth. And throughout all the days of the Old Testament, all the way up to the days that were going on here in the book of Acts, if there was a Gentile person who wanted to, uh, to convert, who wanted to become a full proselyte to Judaism, then they would still, to this day, have to be circumcised in order to do that. I won't go into all that that entails. I, I want this message to be like Z88, right? Safe for the little ears in, in the back seat. But, but let's just say that uh, that would be a lot more of a, of a commitment for a grown man than it would be for an eight-day-old Hebrew boy. And yet this is what it took if you wanted to become a full proselyte to Judaism. And so these folks thought, you know what? It should be the same way now. Uh, nothing has changed. If, if you're going to put your faith in the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Savior, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, then you need to be circumcised. That's how it's always been. Basically, they're saying you need to become Jewish before you can become Christian. In verse 2, we find out that Paul and Barnabas would have none of that. Uh, they were Jews also, of course, but they completely rejected this teaching that the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. The words in verse 2 tell us this wasn't just a little disagreement. They, they threw down uh, over this one, and it was such a sharp disagreement. Neither side was budging on this. And so the church at Antioch decided we need to take this question to Jerusalem. We need to take it to the apostles. We need to take it to the leadership there because this is an important question that needs to be resolved. And so they sent Paul and Barnabas and some others to Jerusalem along the way. Verse 3 says they stopped in some churches in Phoenicia and Samaria, shared about all these Gentiles coming to Christ. People rejoiced. In verse 4, when they made it to Jerusalem, they tell the leaders of the church there the same thing. But again, in verse 5, we read about how these conservative Jewish folks, particularly some of those who were Pharisees, who had come to believe in Jesus as the risen Messiah, we're still adamantly saying, no, it is necessary for them to be circumcised. And they even added this in verse 5. Notice that they also said, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. It wasn't just circumcision. It was also keeping all of the law in order for them to be saved. That was their view. Our outline today is going to be very simple. Uh, along the way, I want us to see two kinds of math 
in this story. Two kinds of math about how people get saved. And here's the first kind of math. This is what these Jewish Pharisees believed. They were teaching a Jesus plus something salvation. A Jesus plus something salvation. Now the something that they were adding to Jesus, we've already talked about. Keeping the law and every detail, being circumcised. So their view of how salvation worked for the Gentiles is that first you need to get circumcised. Then you need to start trying to keep the law of Moses, then sprinkle in some faith in Jesus, and presto, then if you do all of that, you'll be saved. We'll see in a few minutes that the Bible could not be more clear that that is not how salvation works at all. It isn't Jesus plus something because Jesus is all that we need. And church, it is actually dangerous to believe that there is anything that is added to faith in Jesus in order to be saved. I love how a man named R.C.H. Linsky put it. He said this, quote, to add anything to Christ as being necessary for salvation, any, say, circumcision or any human work of any kind, is to deny that Christ is the complete Savior. And that is fatal. A bridge to heaven that is built 99 one-hundredth of Christ and even only one one one-hundredth of anything human breaks down at that very joint and ceases to be a bridge. Even if Christ be thought of as carrying us 999 miles of the way and something merely human be required for the last mile, this would leave us hanging in the air with heaven being still far away. I couldn't agree with him more. Jesus doesn't do 99% of the work. He doesn't take us 999 miles. He carries us all the way. There is nothing that we could add or possibly contribute to what Jesus has already accomplished at the cross. And yet, despite of what the church declared to be true 2,000 years ago at this meeting in A.D. 49... Still, this Jesus plus something thinking about salvation is prevalent today. There's so much of that thinking in the world today and even in the church today. There are some whole churches and whole denominations of churches that teach essentially a Jesus plus something salvation. There are some churches that teach that it is faith in Jesus plus baptism that saves. Now, baptism is certainly important. Baptism is a step of obedience to Christ. It's something that every Christian should certainly do. And yet the Bible does not teach that baptism, the act of being baptized, is what saves us. The Bible teaches that Jesus and Jesus alone is what saves us. There are other churches that teach that it is faith in Jesus plus good works that save a person. They would say it isn't enough just to believe in Jesus. You also have to live a good enough life. Uh, You have to have uh, good works that are a part of what saves you. But as we're going to see in a minute, that's actually the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Now, should we do good works? Absolutely, we should. But we don't do them in order to be saved. We do them because we have been saved. They're the fruit of salvation. They're not the root of salvation. The word for that kind of Jesus plus something salvation thinking is legalism. And people who believe that there's some law or some rule that you need to follow that's added to Christ, something that you must do 
in order to be saved. Now, sometimes legalism comes in a more subtle package. Sometimes people don't say, you have to do such and such in order to be saved. But they'll say, or they will imply, you have to do such and such in order to be a quote-unquote good Christian. And, and, and there's a whole list of things that different churches and different people and groups will put on that list of things you need to do in order to be a good Christian. Uh, they'll say, you know, maybe uh, to be a good Christian, you know, you've got to be in church three times a week. Anything less is, is falling short. Right? They'll say, uh, you know, you need to go to certain events, you need to read certain books, you need to dress a certain way, you need to wear your hair a certain way, you need to only play Christian music in your car, you need to have a Jesus fish decal on the bumper of your car, you know, I don't know, you need to homeschool your kids, you need to eat at Chick-fil-A instead of Popeye's or you're not redeemed, I, you know, just a whole list of things. But, but church, in all seriousness, we have got to run away from that kind of legalistic thinking and teaching. Because this is not God's salvation math. God's salvation math is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This was the clear and unambiguous declaration of the council at Jerusalem. These guys got it because the Holy Spirit led them to get it. Verse 6 tells us that this meeting was led by the apostles, the 12 disciples, and also the elders or the pastors of the church there in Jerusalem. Beginning of verse 7 says that there is, was a lot of debate that was going on. And so, in other words, this isn't a transcript, a word-for-word transcript of everything that was said at this meeting. We're being given the highlights. Really, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is giving us a record of three uh, essentially conference speeches. Have you ever been to a conference? Several people will speak. That's what he's giving us. These are the three conference speakers, uh, three key leaders. And it was their voices that carried the day at this conference. And so first up, and if you know much about this guy, it shouldn't surprise you that he was first up to grab the microphone, is Peter. And Peter's message basically is this. It was Jesus plus nothing 10 years ago. I'll share what I mean by that in just a moment. Now, despite what the Catholic Church teaches, Peter was not the first pope of the early church. In fact, if you read this text carefully, it does not even appear that Peter is the one who is leading this meeting. That honor belongs to James, the Lord's brother, who we will get to in just a minute. But nonetheless, Peter is the spokesman. He's the leader of the 12 disciples. Certainly, his voice carries a tremendous amount of weight. And he starts out in verse 7 with these words. He says, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And when he says a good while ago, he means it because the, the story that he is referencing happened 10 years before this council. And it's a story that we talked about last year. You can read about it in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11 where God chose Peter and, in fact, commanded Peter to get over his uh, prejudices, to get over uh, any type of discrimination in his heart, and to be willing to enter into the home of a Gentile, a, a Roman centurion named Cornelius, and share with Cornelius and with his family about the Lord Jesus. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says what happened. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them. He's talking about Cornelius's family. By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. 
and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. He says, God knows everything. He knows my heart. Uh, he knew Cornelius's heart and his family members' hearts. He knew, knew that their hearts were genuine, that they truly believed. And in that moment, God gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit right then and there, just like he gave to us back in Acts chapter 2. And, and, and really, Peter's point almost goes without saying. What he's saying is God saved them, God gave them the Holy Spirit, and not a person in that house had been circumcised. Right? Not a person in that house had been enrolled in a, in a class on the Mosaic Law. Right? God just saved them right then and there. God is doing something new. And then in verse 10, he says, Why are you going to go then and put a yoke on them? That word yoke is a reference to the law of Moses. He says, why are you going to put that yoke on them when we haven't been able to bear that yoke? We haven't been able to perfectly obey and fulfill the law of Moses. None of our fathers were able to do that. Why are you going to put that heavy yoke on them that we're not able to bear? And really the question he's saying is this, why are you going to make it harder for them to get saved than God has? We shouldn't make things harder than God makes them. You know, one of the easier things probably that most of us do every day is just to get dressed. And I think that's especially true for guys, right? We just basically reach in the drawer or whatever, whatever shirt is on top in the rotation, right, is what, is what goes on. It takes about five seconds to make that decision, right, to put that shirt on. And no, normally, that, again, very quick process. But I remember in, in the youth group, and I, I have Pastor Doug to blame for this, but we'd have a competition occasionally where, you know, one person from each group would be chosen. I remember one time I was chosen to come up and represent my group. And Pastor Doug had taken some t-shirts and doused them in water and then put them in like a deep freezer for days. And so he handed us a frozen t-shirt and, and it was a competition, right? Who could get that frozen t-shirt on the quickest? And if you've never tried that, that is extremely difficult. That might be a fun spring break activity for the kids, right? You, you take that shirt and you've got to hammer that thing, right? You're trying to pry, you know, one arm off and the other arm off and try to get it open enough to, to slip it over. And, and, and this thing that normally should only take like five seconds can take you five or ten minutes, right, to get that shirt uh, on. And, and it's, it's something that should be easy, but Doug has gone and made it incredibly hard. Well, that's what Peter is saying. These people were doing when it comes to salvation, that instead of making it easier for people to come to Christ, they were making it harder and for no reason. That they were adding requirements to salvation that God himself did not add. That God wanted to clothe them with a robe of his grace, with a robe of his forgiveness, but they wanted to put the robe in the freezer first. They, they wanted to put a heavy yoke on their shoulders. I'm so thankful that that's not what Jesus does. In fact, in Matthew 11, this is what Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If Jesus says his yoke is easy, we shouldn't make it difficult. If he says his yoke is is light. We shouldn't try to make it heavier. We should invite people to come and find rest for their weary souls in the only place where they can find it, at the cross of Christ. I love the way Peter ends this speech in verse 11. It's honestly one of the most beautiful statements about the gospel in the whole Bible. He says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved 
in the same manner as they. Notice he doesn't even say they, the Gentiles, are going to be saved like us. He actually says the opposite. He says we're going to be saved in the same way as them. That that we're going to be saved not by keeping the law, but by the grace of Jesus. Grace is not something that you work for. Grace is not something that you earn. Grace is something that is freely given and is received by faith. Now, before we move on, just a quick note. This is actually the last time that we hear from Peter in the book of Acts. As one person put it, it's almost like his speech here where he's defending Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is his last contribution to this story of the book of Acts and the spread of the gospel. And the rest of the book of Acts, of course, focuses on how Paul takes this good news and takes it all over the world, just as Peter defended him doing here. But Peter's speech, again, was about reminding them what happened 10 years ago. 10 years ago, God already showed us that it was Jesus plus nothing is how someone is saved. Well, next to take the microphone is Paul and Barnabas. And their message was, it was Jesus plus nothing on the mission trip that we just got done having, right? And so in verse 12, they tell again the story. They already told this story to the leaders. Now they're telling it to the entire church council that's gathered there. The wonders God did, the miracles God did, all the Gentiles that were saved. Again, it goes without saying the point that they were making. Every city we went to, all these Gentiles got saved. None of them were circumcised. None of them were keeping everything in the law of Moses and all the dietary rules, but God kept saving them everywhere we went. He kept giving them the Holy Spirit. Clearly, this is what God is doing. It is something new. He's not requiring circumcision anymore for those from the nations because Jesus has come. The kingdom has come. He has risen from the dead and a new work is being done. I believe that the first letter that Paul wrote was the letter to the Galatians. It was written shortly before this uh, Jerusalem conference. And in that letter, he he speaks about the same issue. These false teachers that were going to these churches in Galatia with these Gentiles and telling them they needed to be circumcised. And Paul directly responds to that and refutes that. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 2. says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. In other words, nobody gets saved by keeping the law good enough because none of us keep it good enough. He's saying all of us that are saved are saved the same way, by faith in Jesus. Then in verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, if we could get saved just by keeping the law, if we could get saved just by being good enough, then Jesus died for nothing. He didn't need to come. He didn't need to die because you didn't need him for salvation. Obviously, that's not the case. We did need him. Because we haven't been able to keep the law. We needed a savior who would come and keep the law in our place and die on the cross for all the times that we haven't. No, nowhere did Paul ever say this more clearly than in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, no one's going to be in heaven patting themselves on the back and bragging about how they got there because they were such a good person. That's not how it works at all. We're saved by grace, God's gift, through faith. Again, salvation is Jesus plus nothing 
equals everything. So far we've heard from Peter, heard from Paul. They both agree about this, but there's one more voice that needs to be heard at this conference, and that is James. Now, this is not the James who was one of the 12 disciples who was the brother of John. He had already been martyred for his faith by this time. This James was Jesus's half-brother who had come to faith, not during Jesus's ministry, but after Jesus was resurrected from the dead when he saw the risen Lord. He is the one who wrote the book of James that we have in our Bibles. He was called James the Just because of how godly he lived his life. Another nickname he earned was Old Camel Knees. How about that for a nickname? Old Camel Knees. But I love that nickname because he got it because they say he prayed so much. He spent so much time on his knees that by the end of his life when he died, his knees were all knotted and mangled like a camel's. And James was really the leader of the Jerusalem church. If they had a senior pastor, James would have been it. And so when James says in verse 13, listen to me, the people were listening. And here is the message that James basically gave them. He said, God's prophets already told us in the Old Testament that his salvation plan was going to be Jesus plus nothing. In other words, it isn't just what's happening right now. It isn't just what we're seeing right now that tells us this is God's plan. He already announced his plan to us in the pages of the Old Testament. There's a lot of places he could have quoted from. He chose to quote from Amos chapter 9, a passage that speaks about the tent of David being restored. Now, how, how was it restored? It was restored because the son of David came, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has sat down on the throne of David forever. And as Amos says, that wasn't just for the Jewish people, that was also for the Gentiles. It was for the nations to be able to come to faith in the Lord. Verse 18 says, this wasn't something that God just woke up one day and decided to do. This was his plan for from all eternity. This was always the plan of God. And based off of that, in verse 19, James gives his judgment, his decision upon this. And it is a complete rejection of what these Jewish Pharisees were asking for. Look at verse 19. He says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Not to trouble them means the same thing as what Peter was saying when he said not to put a yoke upon them. He means let's not add any extra requirements like circumcision, like keeping the law. Let's not add anything to those who are turning right now to God from the Gentiles. Let's not make it harder for them to come to God. And you know, this is a little bit of an aside, but isn't that the way that all of us as believers should want to live? We should want to live in a way that doesn't make it harder for people to turn to Christ. We want to live in a way that makes it easier for people to come to Christ. We want to live in a way where they see our lives and they see the truth of Christ, they see the hope of Christ, they see the joy of Christ radiating from our lives, and they want to believe in him because of what they see. Yesterday, we had a celebration of life service in this very room. This room was full yesterday with hundreds more watching online for a member of our church named Sherry Lamb, a woman of God who was a teacher at Pineapple Cove. My son Micah had her as his teacher a few years ago. And this was a woman who loved people so well. Who was so selfless in her life. Even, even in the final weeks of her life when she knew she had but weeks to live, delivering meals to other people because of 
hard times that they were going through. Person after person who spoke yesterday at that service declared from this stage, from this pulpit, that she was a person who because of the love she had for Jesus and for others, and because of the joy that she had, even in the hardest of times, she was a person that made it easier for other people to believe in Jesus. And that's what I want. I mean, heaven forbid that I would ever make it harder for someone to believe in Christ. That I would ever put an obstacle, that I would ever put a barrier in someone's way of coming to Christ. No, I want to live as Sherry did. I want to point people to Jesus so that even if it, at this very moment they don't believe in Jesus, that they want to. Because they see the beauty of him, even if they can't explain it. At this point, after verse 19, that the major question that this conference had been convened to answer was already answered. Peter and Paul and James all agreed the Pharisees were wrong in what they were asking for. The church was not going to require the Gentiles to be circumcised or to keep all, all the Mosaic law. They were not going to require them basically to become Jewish before they could become Christians. God had showed them what his salvation math was. And again, it was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The major issue had been settled, but there was still one practical issue that needed to be addressed. And that was how Jewish believers and Gentile believers could live in the same church family and do church together. When the Jews at that time had grown up their whole lives keeping all of these dietary laws and their consciences still convicted them if they were not to do that. And yet you have the Gentiles who were not keeping all of those things. And that's what James is trying to address in verses 20 and 21. When he says, but that we write to them, to the Gentiles, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Now, to be clear, James is not walking back what he has just said. He is not adding requirements to salvation upon these Gentiles. That's not what these four things are. He's trying to attack this thorny issue of how fellowship works in the church between Jews and Gentiles. And he's asking the Gentiles to help with that by refraining from four things that would have been particularly offensive to the consciences of their Jewish brothers and sisters. First, he refers to things polluted by idols. Now, later in the letter that they wrote, it gets a little more specific. The meat that was offered to idols, to false gods in the temple, and the leftover from that meat was then sold in the marketplace. He says to avoid that for the sake of the consciences of the Jewish people. Then he tells them to avoid sexual immorality. Of course, that should always be avoided in all forms. But here he's particularly speaking about, I believe, the cult prostitution that would happen at the temples that was a part of the worship of false gods that took place. And then he mentions a couple of dietary restrictions, avoiding meat with blood in it, things strangled, which because of the way it was killed would have still had some of the blood in it also. Now, to be clear, these four items are not forever restrictions on the church, apart from avoiding sexual immorality. There are other passages in the New Testament that directly address these issues and explicitly lift dietary restrictions from the church. But again, this was written in a very specific cultural moment when you had in the same church family Jewish folks who had grown up keeping all of these dietary laws and Gentile believers who were coming in 
And he's asking the Gentiles to think about the way that you live and to live in such a way that you don't offend the consciences of your brothers and your sisters. And even though we live in a different age, that principle about being willing to give up things in order to not offend our brothers and our sisters is still as applicable today as it ever was. You know, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, he talks about the same issue of eating meat that has been sacrificed previously to idols. And what Paul writes is, you know that these idols are absolutely nothing, right? These aren't gods. They have no power. He said, I know that. You know that. Because I know that, my conscience is not pricked when I eat this meat. He says, you're not any better off if you eat it or any better off if you don't eat it. But then he says, for the sake of others who don't believe that, for the sake of others whose consciences are wounded, he he said, then I wouldn't do it. In fact, this is what he says in verse 13 at the end of that chapter. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, how many of y'all, especially the guys in here, could say that, right? Never have another steak, never have another hamburger. But he's saying, that's how important it is to me that I don't cause one of my brothers or sisters in Christ to stumble and fall. And if that's what I need to do, if I need to give up meat so that their conscience is clear, so that they're not wounded or offended or stumble because they see me do something they don't think I should be doing, then I'm willing to give that up. This is the principle that love trumps liberty. That our love for each other in the body of Christ should cause us to be willing to give away our liberty and our freedom in Christ because of our love for them. That's what the Lord was calling them to do. It's what he's calling us to do. And church, here's the truth. We're a part of this family because of Jesus plus nothing. And because of that, there should be nothing that we wouldn't gladly give up for the sake of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Now, with that said, of course, there are some things that we're not free to give up, like the gospel itself, right? We need to fight for that, and that's what Paul did. But there are other things which are not central to our faith, which we should be flexible about. We should show grace to people who think differently than we do. One of those things we've seen this year, right, has been COVID, all the different responses to it, different kinds of thinking about that, an area we have to show grace to each other, even right now. But there's always things like that. Things that um, we maybe disagree about, have different opinions about, things like worship style, things like ministry preferences, things like that that are not gospel issues. They're, They're not things we need to drive down iron stakes about. You know, there are times when you need an iron stake for a job, and there are times when you need a flexible garden hose. And we need to know when it's time for which. In the essentials, we should be willing to go to our desk to defend them. And I mean that quite literally. But in the non-essentials, we should be willing to bend and sacrifice for the sake of others. We don't insist as Christians on our preferences and on our rights because we follow a Savior who gave his rights away. We follow a Savior who gave his very life away in order to save ours. Now, we won't spend long here, but in verses 22 through 29, the council puts pen to paper, sends this letter of their decision to Antioch. They sent it with Paul and Barnabas. They sent it with a couple other messengers from the church at Jerusalem, one whose name was Judas. And of course, it's not that Judas, different Judas. And Silas, and Silas, of course, is about to take a very prominent role in the story that follows because he is going to go as Paul's companion on his second missionary journey that we'll look at next week. 
And so they come and they deliver this letter and essentially they say, we know that there were some people who came from Jerusalem. They troubled you. They, they said things like you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, but you need to know we didn't send them. You need to know they were acting on their own authority. You need to know we don't agree with that. Here's what we think. Here's what we believe. Here's what the Spirit has led us to. And then in verse 28, it says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Notice the Holy Spirit's first. They're so sure that the Holy Spirit is the one who has led them to this decision. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is the one that wrote the letter. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and it seemed good to us that we should tell you this, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. In other words, we're not going to require you to be circumcised. We're not going to require you to do these other things. And then in verse 29, they just simply give the same four things that James had talked about for the sake of unity, for the sake of fellowship, in the body. Verse 31 says that when the Gentiles read that letter, they rejoiced. They rejoiced because they, they didn't know what was going to come back from this conference. They didn't know what the answer was going to be. But when they read this letter, when they got this letter and they heard the explanation, they rejoiced because they knew that the door had forever been swung open to everyone who would believe. That the door was open for them, even as Gentiles from among the nations, to come to Jesus and to be saved. They were Christians, not because of anything that they did. They were Christians because they believed in Jesus Christ and had been saved. It wasn't Jesus plus something else. But again, even though this, this conference happened 2,000 years ago, this kind of thinking of Jesus plus something else is salvation is still so prevalent today. I mean, you know, most um, surveys that are done still to this day of Americans, the majority of respondents say that they believe in God. Yes, they believe in God. It's still over 90% say they believe in God. Most people believe in God. But then you say, uh, you know, do you believe in heaven? Most say they believe in heaven. Not everybody says they believe in hell, but they believe in heaven. And then if you say, you know, are, are you, do you believe you're going to heaven? Most would say yes to that. But then if you ask the question, well, why do you think that you're going to heaven? The answer that you get back most often is something along these lines. It can be stated differently, but something along these lines. Well, I just feel like I'm a pretty good person. I, I feel like I've done more good things in my life than I've done bad things in my life. And so God is going to let me in. But we've seen today in the word of God, as clearly as can be seen, that is not how it works. That, that nobody, not one person, will be in heaven because they did more good things than bad things. That nobody will be in heaven because they were a, quote, good person. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has a perfect, holy, righteous standard, and we're not even close to measuring up to it. Not one of us. But, but the good news is, that Jesus came, that he was and is good enough, that he perfectly obeyed the law that we could not obey, that he died on the cross, and the reason that he died was to pay for all the times that we have failed to keep the law. And then he rose on the third day. And maybe you came into this room today, and, and maybe you wouldn't have said it in those terms when you came in, but, but now you see it, that, that kind of all of your life up until this point, this is kind of how you've thought about salvation. It's, it's kind of been jumbled in your mind, but it's basically been a, a Jesus, but, but also some other things. You know, Jesus plus, you know, I go to church a lot. You know, Jesus, you know, plus I was baptized as an infant. Jesus, you know, and I was confirmed. Jesus, and I've done mostly good stuff. And today you've realized that is not at all what the Bible teaches. 
And, and you're coming to that realization and coming to that place where you know my faith has to be in Christ alone. That, that salvation is not anything that I contribute, anything that I add. It, it is simply grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I want to ask you to stand right now with me. And if you're here and you would say, yes, that's, that is what I need. I need to take that step of faith today and, and put all of my hope and all of my trust in what Jesus Christ did. Come and share that with me. Come and share that with one of these other pastors that's here. Come and, come and kneel here at the altar and just cry out to God and say, God, forgive me, save me. I put my faith in you and you alone right now, this day. You come. Sweet see. 